I remember when I when I first read just the announcement that something like this happened, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, just as an accounting professional, I know firsthand how difficult it is on clients when a resource is, when a resource that you're using for a client or the client themselves are using doesn't perform as hoped. When I read this, I thought to myself, man, that brings that experience to just a whole new level. Not only did it not perform as hoped, but it aggressively accentuated an experience that no one desires. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by BQE Core. If you have niche clients that are architects, engineers, consultants, or lawyers, BQE Core is the app for them to best manage their firm, increase their staff productivity, and ultimately increase their profits. Even if you don't have those niche clients, Core is a great tool to use in your own accounting or bookkeeping firm as well. Core is an easy-to-use all-in-one platform for project management, but includes advanced functionality like budgets, labor costs, forecasting, contract analysis, and approval processes. Core also includes a standalone accounting module. Even though Core is an all-in-one platform, it still works nicely with other apps, offering you and your clients the maximum amount of flexibility. Core offers a full-function mobile app and recently launched a cutting-edge voice-based assistant for your smart speaker of choice. To learn even more about BQE Core, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash core. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-O-R-E. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. I'm David Leary. And I'm Will Lopez of Gusto. So, Will, when did that happen? You were, we, we've known each other for quite a long time. I think I met you at one of the first conferences I ever went to. I think it was the yeah, old, I think so. maybe SleaterCon back in the day. I barely just met him at the last accounting salon. It was the first time ever. Yeah, I think that was that was SleaterCon's last conference in Las Vegas. And that's where we officially met. We met, we bonded there. And that was when you had your own firm in Florida called AdvisorFi, which yep. I you know very much admired. And you were doing that for quite a long time. And then now now you are have moved to Denver. And you what are you doing with Gusto but, these but days? Wait, wait, wait. You, you yeah. skipped the whole YouTube channel he had. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that was quite – I mean, you were creating all these great like videos for business owners, accountants, like taking the, the, the crazy like elaborately produced YouTube video concept and applying that to our profession. I think you really yeah, it, it, it was an extreme hodgepodge of uh, personas oozing out of my channel. And it's still there, right? So if people want to go check it out, uh, you've got that AdvisorFi YouTube channel there. Um, but you're no longer um, a YouTube star or, 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 I mean, maybe you're going to keep doing that. But like you sold your firm right? and now you are – what are you doing with Gusto? And relocated as well, right? You moved? Yeah. yeah. I relocated from South Florida. So born and raised in South Florida, by the way. So relocating anywhere is – it's going to be my first time experience because I, I was born down in Hollywood, raised in the South Florida area, went to college there, got married there, had my family there, you know, all life there. Recently took uh, a leadership position with Gusto to help them lead the account community side to Gusto. So um, no regrets whatsoever. Absolutely love Gusto. Gusto was one of the few companies I thought to myself that like if I ever had a, an opportunity to like work with one of these pretty amazing fintech apps – I think Gusto would be it. So, you know, it's, it's, I'd love to say, um, you know, it's one of those once in a lifetime opportunities, if any, in a lifetime. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I just couldn't pass it up. 
Awesome. Well, we're very lucky to have you on given the ongoing drama with payroll and fraud. I'll look forward to getting your take on that. Oh, yeah. And we've got some other stories. Of course, I want to assure our listeners, even though the last two episodes have been very focused on my payroll HR, we're going to have more than that in this episode. We're going to not not dwell on that too much. Uh, but first, we have some reviews, right, David? Yeah, yeah, we'll jump right in. So this uh, review is five stars. It's from Melissa Wasgat. Amazing podcast. I listened through Spotify while I work. Excellent full coverage of everything accounting. Thank you so much. David Shingler said five stars. I currently work at ADP in the small business market and partnering with CPAs is the sole role I have here. So keeping up to date on the newest information and trends is key for being a valuable asset to the firms I work with. I love listening to cloud accounting to keep me updated on the industry, growth for firms, and anything I can obtain knowledge-wise to best partner with the CPAs I work with. Their podcast makes it easy to listen to and is extremely informative, especially for somebody who does not deal with the ins and outs that many CPAs deal with on a day-to-day basis. I highly recommend this to all accounting practices and anyone curious about the updates slash trends within the CPA world. Thanks, David. This is a five stars from Trevor McCandless. Great podcast. Blake and David live accounting industry news and updates and share their insights in a way that I do not hear or read anywhere else. Keep up the good work. Awesome. Thanks so much. And finally, the single best source for digestible news in the accounting world. As a partner advisor at Gusto, I speak with dozens of accounting and bookkeeping professionals from around the country weekly who are all asking how I'm keeping up with the latest tech and changes in the industry. The number one resource I recommend outside of the Gusto Partners blog is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I listen weekly and I'm able to oftentimes bring up relevant news and happenings uh, with my partners to ensure they're maximizing their profits and offerings to their clients. The recent episode on the My Payroll HR scandal was the best source of information I was able to find on the tragic situation because Blake and David put in the time research to provide us with a clear explanation on the situation as we know it. Thanks for keeping me and our partners at Gusto up to date, Matt Woodson. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Trevor, David, and Melissa for your reviews this week. And a reminder to our listeners, if you want to write a review, you can head over to our page on Apple Podcasts or on podchaser.com, as David said, and leave us a review and we will read it on the air. It's like a free commercial, right? ADP got a free commercial. Gusto got a free commercial. So (laughs) paychecks or any of you other payroll providers that are out there, go write us a review. Yeah. Love to read it on the air. Uh, Well, you know, the Cloud Accounting Podcast is is part of our toolkit over here. So that's how we stay up to date, right? (laughs) That's awesome. That's great to hear. It's in the new hire manual. Yeah, it should be. It should be be officially. officially. (laughs) Let's get on on that. Get on the news, Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, uh, we got lots to talk about um, some updates on my payroll HR. And for those who are not familiar, we're talking about the $35 million payroll fraud, a small payroll processor in New York at the beginning of this month, shortly after Labor Day, just up and shut down, went out of business, disappeared, leaving 4,000 employers, as many as a quarter million employees in the lurch. And for some of them, their payroll didn't process. And in fact, they ended up having negative account balances because of a whole mess that occurred with the payment processor uh, cache. And we've got an interview, an in-depth interview with the chief legal uh, counsel for Cache Financial Services. Uh, that was our most recent episode. So check that out for a full, almost like true crime episode about what happened uh, with this fraud. Um, but yeah, you, so you want to listen to episode 112 yeah. and then episode 114. Uh, episode 114 is the interview. We're, we're not going to go back into the whole thing of what happened. Let's just talk about the latest updates, David. So since the last two days, um, there's a news article that Michael Mann has hired an attorney. 
and there was even a uh, so he's alive. He's alive. He exists. Okay. Um, and the attorney, the attorney made a statement. Where did we? So this is Michael Koenig now representing Michael Mann, the owner of the now closed My Payroll HR and uh, the parent company ValueWise Corp. He's the guy who's been missing, along with the money. So I'll read the quote here. Almost two weeks ago, through me, Michael Mann contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office. Michael has since voluntarily and proactively met with and is cooperating with the U.S. Attorney's Office in order to fully and accurately address recent events. He will continue to do so, but will not be making any public statements. So he's cooperating. We still don't know if he's in the country, but we know he's got an attorney and is cooperating with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Yeah, and he went on to to reiterate that we affirmatively reached out to U.S. Attorney's Office before any law enforcement or regulatory agent came to him. Okay, so that must have been then before the raid on his home uh, that was, what, a few days ago, right? Yeah, or before um, Governor Cuomo announced mm-hmm. the election investigation, et cetera, et cetera. So either A, it was guilt, right? <laughs> like, oh, I made a big mistake. I shouldn't have done this. Or like I said before, is, is he compromised? I don't know. Uh, another story, breaking news. Two class action lawsuits have been filed against Cache Financial Services, the third-party processor that handled payroll direct deposits for my payroll HR. A Los Angeles-based law firm filed a complaint on Thursday against Cache in the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California, where Cache is headquartered. And then another uh, firm, a Las Vegas-based firm, filed in Nevada against Cache and also named My Payroll HR in that lawsuit. So this is, I think they're representing the employees as a class who reported having their direct deposits pulled back from their accounts when the money was missing from the settlement account. And uh, Cache really, they bungled that. You know, I think we can, we can all agree that that's not a complicated analysis that causing the payrolls to go twice was a, a bit of a problem and it caused some major issues for some of these employees. Like people couldn't pay rent, they couldn't buy medication, all right, a big problem. So uh, there may be more consequences to this, to Cache and possibly the banks too, than uh, and my payroll HR than just the missing money. I get it, right? Like if Cache was able to possibly eat $26 million, yeah. the lawyers are probably like, hey, that means it, what's another $5 million to sue them for? Because they can't, they're probably not, nobody's going to be able to sue my payroll HR because it's pretty clear that money's gone. Nobody has well, that money. Well, but there is a frozen account with like $19 million in it. At, yeah, I was going to say, is it really gone? I mean, yeah, because yeah. I read the same thing. It may take a long time to figure out where it went, I guess, right? And we still, of course, don't know where what Michael Mann intended to do with the money speculation. Like if he hasn't fled the country with it, then maybe he was just trying to keep other businesses afloat by moving money around. I, I don't, it's very strange. So we'll, we'll find out. So, so I, I'm really happy that we have Will on. Because Will, you know, being at Gusto as a um, as a connection to the accounting community, I want to I want to learn from you. What is what is the insight from somebody inside a payroll company on the you know watching this happen? What is your takeaway from this? And and then I've got some more follow up questions as to you know how do you ensure at Gusto that this doesn't happen? Yeah, you know, I remember when I when I first read the. Just the announcement that something like this happened. I was thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, just as an accounting professional, I know firsthand how difficult it is on clients when a resource is, when a resource that you're using for a client or the client themselves are using doesn't perform as hoped, right? Mm-hmm. And public accounting is is riddled with those kind of experiences where some things work, some things don't, um, just in a very broad way. And 
when I read this, I thought to myself, man, that brings that experience to just a whole new level, right? Yeah. Um, not only did it not perform as hoped, but it aggressively accentuated an experience that no one desires. So yeah, yeah. like what I, we've been talking a lot about the employers, the employees, but what about those uh, accountants and bookkeepers who recommended my parallel yeah. HR to their clients who, who partnered with them right now that they, they look, it looks like they don't know what they're doing. Uh, yeah, or it, it kind of pins them in a light where they they made a bad recommendation. Right? Yeah, or yeah. or even look at the accounting professional. What what processes do you have to make sure that the resources that you're recommending um, are good resources, are yeah. resources that uh, have longevity to it? Right. Obviously, at Gusto, one of our pillars or our mission here is obviously you know to create a world work empowers a better life, and something like this does not empower a better life. So no doubt, it's a sad day in the land of accounting and business, and uh, and and one of the pillars associated with our mission is a uh, peace of mind, right? So there's mm-hmm. very little peace of mind going on here for, for those who are affected by like the, my payroll HR situation. So, so the way this happened, as it was explained to us by Wendy Slavkin at cache is that uh, somebody at my payroll HR messed with the payment file or the batch file that was sent to cache instructing them on how to move money around. So basically an account number got changed in a file. So like, is that something that is an industry standard practice where um, that's possible that any payroll service could be the victim of this? I mean, the other one was as well. There were two actually, right? NatPay was also a victim of my payroll HR. How does it work at Gusto? Like, do you guys partner with a payment processor? Uh, what's the workflow for you? Is it the same? Is it different? Yeah, because I think to elaborate on that, I, that's what goes off in my head is you have like, so somebody like Gusto or, you know, a modern SaaS application, right, is all based on APIs making API calls to QuickBooks, making API calls to uh, zero, et cetera. And it's all, there's error controls and all that. But the ACH system sounds like it's still just like a text file. Right. How does Gusto bridge that world of on the front end, on one end, we're this high-tech SaaS company. On the back end, we're kind of still dealing with technology that was designed and procedures from 1975. Why should accountants trust Gusto? Yeah, no, so great question. So obviously Gusto has dedicated risk teams that oversee all this kind of activity. In general, though, Gusto's payment systems, they're, they're designed in such a way so that if any changes happen to a bank account that's initiated, um, then that change is screened for either a fraudulent or suspicious behavior using kind of like our proprietary uh, machine learning model systems that we have internally. So any transactions that are kind of flagged as suspicious are then blocked until our dedicated risk team manually reviews them and approves the transaction. So on top of all that, though, our payment systems not only automatically notifies the customer every single time, anytime a change is made to their bank account information, which is kind of uh, not the story you heard on the on the payroll, my payroll HR front. That is, you had my payroll HR obviously doing something with employee bank account information and no one knew it. Yeah. So there was no transparency on that side, whereas on our platform, there's full transparency. And anytime something triggers where any kind of changes are happening at the bank account level, every single time the customer is notified. Well, the, the, I think that's the – everybody had that covered. And the accounting professional gets notified right. as well and it, if, you, if you're working with a gusto partner. But the employee account number stuff, like everybody's handling those use cases. It's expected, right? It's expected an employee moves banks. It's ex- um, Maybe an employee got fished in their contacting HR department and then somebody's manually changing the bank accounts and the, of the employee bank accounts. But that's not really what happened here. What happened here is the, the file of the source account got changed. The actual main, main, where the real money was, 
that's the one that got that got redirected. The money was diverted from the employer accounts instead of going to a settlement account, went to, you know, a my payroll HR account, account controlled exactly. by Michael Mann. Yeah. yeah. So how do, how do yeah. you like prevent that? So from from personal experience, I remember even before Gusto, I used to be a controller for a non-for-profit that did a lot of batch payments for payroll, right? And so the way we would do we would run employee files is we would create just this batch file that gets submitted into the into the payroll company. Generally speaking, there's always a front-end software that you upload this batch file to that gets associated to the payment processor. Same thing at Gusto, where if there are any changes that happen to bank account information or batch files, the front end, the front end of that is Gusto. So it, it, in conjunction with changing anything, it always triggers something. So it, you, you can't go into the payment processor's end and like manipulate data there. It's always front end software driven. So depending on whether or not the payroll company is as, as transparent as they should be versus want to be, that drives notification as far as like who gets notified of the change. So, you know, on our side, any changes that happen, whether it's uh, singular changes or even batch changes, uh, the employees get notified. The partner gets notified if they're working with a Gusto partner. The company gets notified because that front end activity is what's happening on the Gusto platform. And, and does Gusto go through internal controls, audits, security audits? Like how do how do partners, how can they be reassured that the controls are in place, as you say? So. Yeah, so great question, and um, and you're kind of speaking to my heart here, right? So, like, I used to be a, a former financial statement auditor. Love this side of of the business. Just never sold it as a practice. Um, so, obviously, Gusto's built uh, to be a durable company, right? That serves small businesses, hopefully for many decades to come. I mean, even recently, we got our Series D financing from leading investors like Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, General Catalyst, and it goes through substantial due diligence process and doing due diligence work prior to, to AdvisorFi at my old firm called Daskal Bolton. It's really, really heavy stuff. And so we look at financial statement integrity, financial health, burn rates, cash flow, the whole thing. So because we've gone through regular series uh, or re- regular rounds of funding, we constantly go through those due diligence reviews by not only just one party or two parties, but by multiple parties. Because each each of these investors have their own due diligence teams. So if we get investments from like Fidelity, T. Price, and General Catalyst, that's three due diligence teams coming in and reviewing the same thing over and over and over again. So they're not they're not utilizing each other's work papers. So and now because of this use case, right? The, the, what's happened here? Cache wasn't uh, ready for this. NatPay or is it NatPay? Blake or NatPay? Yeah, NatPay was yeah. the uh, the other one. They handled yeah. the tax deposits. They weren't aware of this this possible fraudulent use case, and so now it's like you know now all the payroll play- players are, and they're going to put in controls around this um, because ultimately it would be like in somebody internally at, at Augusto, right, or something doing like this. But now it's led though. If you if you saw the article, the New York State Senate is considering putting regulations on the payroll industry, and my my thing on that is I get why what's going to motivate that. But I also think it would kill things. Imagine if there was like highly high regulations around eight to 10 years ago, would we have a gusto or a wage point or an on pay, or even would square be able to get in the payroll game? Mm -hmm. If we have this heavily regulated um, environment, like from an innovation standpoint. 
I mean, I think regulation is good. I don't think it, I don't think any payroll company should should think this is a this is a bad thing. And I know that New York has put forth those two pieces of legislation, which is legislation. I think that they're putting forward is a little more after the fact um, because yes, yeah, yeah. I think I think I think one of the one of the bills basically just makes it a or creates a criminal penalty for kind of any intentional misappropriating of like payroll and, and payroll tax funds, right? So that's one bill. And that's an after the fact thing. Uh, the other bill is basically making payroll processor companies responsible for paying up to three times the value of a paycheck if an employee misses a paycheck, right? That's an after the fact thing. So uh, I know at Gusto, we're as transparent as we c- can possibly be, not only to our partners, but also our customers, our Gusto customers. So I, I don't think regulation is bad in making sure that companies are very transparent when you have a tremendous amount of users and their employees very dependent on on you as a resource, right? So we would welcome it. I would welcome it. I think it's a good thing. To me, it's, it's uh, what, what is almost uh, unimaginable in the payroll industry. So lawyers, right? If lawyers get that that money from clients, they have to, that retainer, they have to put in a trust account, and those trust accounts cannot be commingled with their business. You know, their operating accounts for running their actual law firm practice. The trust accounts are completely separate. But apparently in the payroll industry, the the deposits, this money that's moving back and forth, you can commingle that with your company finances. Wow. Like yeah, it does the, not have to be handled separately. Like there's no legal reason to handle it separately. And that seems insane. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I would totally agree. I mean, I remember just even having these conversations with clients at AdvisorFi, right? Like people would ask me all the time, should I have a separate bank account for my company? You know, or is it okay for me to commingle my business funds with my personal funds, right? So it's the same argument, you know, like, so, mm-hmm. I mean, at, at Gusto, I mean, we have completely uh, uh, separated customer funds from its own corporate funds, yeah. Right. So and, and we include any money Gusto holds on behalf of customers for, for purposes of tax payments. So, like I said, a lot of the behaviors that a lot of the good habits and the good things that one should do as a business owner, we're already doing at Gusto. The question is, is there a law that forces you to do the good things? Right. So mm-hmm. we try to be as intentional as possible. But will there be legislation that mandates good, uh, good business practices to happen? And I think one of the security risks that this whole episode with my parallel HR exposes is the weakness of ACH uh, as a system right. uh, and the, the risks associated with it. When you give somebody your account number and routing number to make direct deposits or, or to withdraw funds from your account, that could be misused, right? The company might screw up and take out too much money or do it twice as, as, as it happened with cache. And so I think uh, one of the things that I've always done that I think everybody should do if, if, if it's not too expensive uh, is just have a separate bank account that you use for ACH deposits and then move the money as soon as you receive it into another account and you don't give out that number. Mm-hmm. Right? And that way you're protected uh, from somebody scamming the ACH system and, and tying up your money uh, for potentially months, right? Because it can take months to resolve some of these issues with banks. Which is the, what part of the pain these employees are going through is that, you know, there's been a hold on the funds that have been uh, drawn out of their accounts, and they have to work with the banks to get that unfrozen. And that is right. a very it can take they have up to sixty days to decide what to do, and you and, don't exactly have sixty days to pay your rent. And it's a very low tech process. I talked to somebody who uh, is involved in technical support recently for payroll, and so if something happened, employee didn't get paid, 
you'd have to investigate, right? And yeah. so a lot of times it's because somebody mistyped an account number somewhere. And so essentially it would be the, the payroll company would be doing a control F and searching in a text file for this employee's name, social uh, bank account numbers. And then on the other side of the phone call would be the bank doing the same in their text file, trying to figure out what where the typo is, right? And then get it fixed and then resolve going forward. But it's very, very low tech in the grand scheme of where we are in 2019. So I, 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 unless there's anything else you guys want to talk about with my period HR, I'd love to like move on because there is other news that has happened. <laughs> there <laughs> is. Uh, and Will, I think you want to talk about a little bit about, a little bit about WeWork, right? Yeah. Um, WeWork is notoriously known in the startup community, right? Like I, I can't, I, I cannot imagine a world at the moment without WeWork. Any startup knows about WeWork. It's such a great co-working space as a business owner to kind of get yourself into without committing to kind of like any real real estate. Like Starbucks. We, yeah, like Starbucks, right? So like WeWork has really become known as like connecting entrepreneurs and and others who in the past would have worked from like home or like like you said, David, a, a coffee shop. The kind of the, the company just kind of became known as bringing a new way of working to a changing world. Right. And so recently in the Wall Street Journal or recently we work themselves have thought about going public and want to go public. And, and they've kind of built this, you know, office rental giant at a, an amazing private valuation of like, I think, $47 billion. But what has happened is obviously the founders behaviors while while it worked, you know, as a privately held company has not worked in its initial public offering last month. So, you know, the, the New York uh, Times article made a really good case where, you know, WeWork themselves has just been besieged but with criticism over its governance, right? So, like, even tying back to, like, good governance, does a company have good governance? And when others get involved, does that good governance just, like, break because they're not really performing good governance? So, like, their business model and, like, their – I mean, so not, not only is there good, good governance – uh, or their governance being questioned, but like their business model, their ability to turn a profit, you know, now they're expecting like an IPO valuation as low as one third of the original $47 billion sticker price. Um, that was supposed well, to be And I think million. I saw their uh, biggest investor, SoftBank, is also their biggest customer. It's like 10% of the revenue. Well, having a concentration, a revenue concentration is not a bad thing. Um, it just needs to be disclosed on the financial statement. Now you're right. talking to an auditor, right? So like having concentration is not bad. It just needs to be disclosed because right. if you have a concentration of revenue and you lose that one client, it could, it could materially impact, but that's the, but impact someone's, the reader. What'd you say? say a con- uh, the, but the concentration of revenue is from the main investor. Well, and, and potentially one that could help prop up IPO valuation, right? Because they're, they've talked right. about putting in hundreds of millions of dollars into this IPO. And to me, like it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be uh, necessary, right? If there's real value there to, to, for them to do that. And, and um, yeah, like the banks underwriting the IPO are the ones that are also invested in the company currently um, and also a huge tenant. Right, and and then there's all the self dealing with the founder. Is it Adam Newman? Is his name? I yeah. Think? And and he has all these loans, and he has pro- like he's he owns buildings that we work is leasing, and um, that's been a big issue, right? Entangling that has been an issue. So yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of related party activity going on there. I, um, I think even his like wife had the, uh, and I guess they're changing this, but she could designate his successor if something happened to him. Like that's a little bit unusual that like the board doesn't get to do it. 
that that she gets to do it. Yeah. Well, like I said, like in the in the land of a private business, like yeah. almost anything is free range, right? And so, like, I think what's interesting about this case is realizing the long term, the long term health of a business when you're not only staying as a private business, but if you're even considering about going public and getting other people involved and making sure that you're doing good business, right? Yeah. So things worked beforehand. Things are not working so much after the fact yeah. when 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 investors and auditors and everybody else gets involved. <laughs> now, I may not be a huge fan of the WeWork uh, IPO and what's been happening here, but I'm a big fan of, of WeWork. I was a customer or a member, I should say, because they call them members. Uh, I was a, a t- member for three, four years when I had my own firm. Uh, I, I love using it. Um, when I, I I love that you can travel around and then book conference rooms in the cities you're in. So I would go to New York and I needed to record a podcast episode. I just go to WeWork and book a conference room and do it. That's pretty awesome. But there's been a downside to all of this attention with the IPO is that it's it's drawing attention to other aspects of WeWork that um, may be a little problematic. Mm-hmm. And one of them, which I was aware of when I was a tenant there, is their Wi-Fi. And this is a, a, a based on an article I spotted in CNET, and the title is WeWork's Weak Wi-Fi Security Leaves Sensitive Documents Exposed. Interesting. Apparently, if you're just a member and you're using their free Wi-Fi uh, that comes with your membership, it's super high speed. It's great. But they deliberately do not, to keep it fast, they deliberately do not protect that Wi-Fi network. It's, it's, it's like you're using the Starbucks Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi at the airport. And a lot of people apparently don't realize this. And so uh, a security researcher has been going around to all these um, WeWork offices in New York and finding many sensitive documents just exposed on the network, right? People who have wow. shares on their, on their computers, right? And, and, you know, these are companies that may be financial companies uh, and a lot of big businesses are using WeWork now. So what you need to know is if you're a tenant or you're thinking about being a WeWork tenant, is that you need to pay extra for a VLAN, a, a virtual local area network that then separates uh, your company uh, from everybody else in the WeWork building. Uh, so you're not sharing a network with them. That costs an additional $95 a month with a $250 setup fee. And a private uh, office network costs $195 a month. I don't know the difference between those. I'm guessing different levels of security. But that can add to the cost of having an office at WeWork, which you know the, the whole point is that it can be as low as uh, a few hundred dollars a month to have a membership there. Yeah, the beauty of VPN, right? Like, talk about trying to protect your data on your computer when you're when you're bouncing from Wi-Fi to Wi-Fi. Yeah, and it slows things down, right? It's like you, you, that's the thing about VPN. I mean, you could use that with WeWork, uh, just a VPN client on your computer, but then that slows down Zoom or or any like video chat or gaming or whatever you're doing. Um, so yeah, yeah so you got to pay extra. Uh, so yeah, just something to something to watch for. So, David, what else do we want to talk about this week? I've got some stories about Intuit and TurboTax tipping at the counter, right? All these like point of sales that now let you tip. Who tips? Who doesn't? We can talk about broadband. Two companies took some pretty big rounds. Practice Ignition. Oh, yeah. Practice who, Ignition uh, raised, what, remember, like 15 million US? Yeah. So, Guy Pearson was on the podcast way back in our early days, like going back to October of you know, 2018. So they took a $26 million raise to really ramp up their team. They want to ramp up to almost 200 employees and really make their global push now and uh, add new features and more functionality. So it's just, uh, it's helping them to make that next step. So it's really a good story because Guy was an accountant. Yeah. I, I, love, was, I love this. He started on his own practice, an accounting practice, and now he is has a well-funded SaaS-based startup. I love it when accountants found companies to solve their own problems, right? Those are always tend to be great, great companies. 
Will, did you use practice ignition at your firm when you had your firm? Actually, funny story there. I actually built a mini version of practice ignition before I knew practice ignition was was PI. So you could you could you could have. You could have took it to market. I could have took it to market, but I totally built it for my firm specifically <laughs> because I, I, in the beginning, when I first started my practice, I didn't realize practice ignition was around. And I think at the time they were in Australia and they weren't, they weren't really in the United States uh, making a lot of noise or ground or just trying to get uh, market share here in the States. So I built a solution that um, allows my perspective uh clients to select plans with me, to onboard plans with me, to capture their their payment information securely through like Braintree and, and everything. So I built actually a mini onboarding solution. And I, I remember having a conversation long ago with Guy Pearson when I first ran into him and uh, he wanted to see what I had built. And at the time I thought to myself, he just wants to see if I'm competing against him. <laughs> and, uh, but I was, but it was a just genuine uh, interest uh, because he, in his mind, I think it validated what he was doing, right? And uh, and while I felt like I was slightly ahead of the curve by doing something like that and building like an onboarding solution, I didn't have the power that he did on uh, on his platform, right? I, I wasn't able to customize the plans; they were just kind of like pre baked one, two, three kind of plans. I'm really excited for Guy. Uh, I mean, Guy has worked very hard on PI, and I think a practice ignition is such a great solution, not only for like accounting pros, but just anybody who's in the professional industry, right? Anybody who's thinking about selling plans, needing recurring engagement, wants to capture payment up front, scaling that whole onboarding pain point, uh, PI is such a great solution for that. So kudos to Guy for like locking that in. I'm excited to see what they're going to do in the future. Uh, and who else? Somebody else raised money, you said? Yeah. Uh some gigantic company called Stripe. Oh, yeah. We know that. <laughs> so, so Stripe took a $250 million round, bringing its total valuation to $35 billion. Wow. Wow. Man, it's amazing. I, I wish I had a business where I could just take 2.9% of every transaction in the global economy. <laughs> that would well, be great. And, well, Gusto's a, a unicorn now. Gusto's got a – there's Gusto a $2 billion valuation now, Well. Yeah. Uh, well, no. So they got um, they received two hundred million dollars, and I think that puts our valuation up into man. What did I? I think you're a unicorn. I think Gusto's a unicorn. I, I, I'd be safe to. I don't know if you're a two x unicorn, but I think you're Gusto's a unicorn. But if you think about that, this is like thirty five x, right? Of whatever Gusto's at. Unicorn it, of it's unicorns. It's very very insane. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty pretty insane. Yeah, and and so they're they're now the most valuable private financial technology play that's out there. There's no doubt Stripe is is a game changer out there. I mean, they've done some incredible stuff. I mean, some of the solutions that they've rolled out are are, are pretty amazing. So that's what's kind of cool about being on the other side of the fence and not and not doing accounting full time anymore, but being on like the app side. And maybe uh, Blake, you can speak into this. Uh, but it's it's interesting to see more closely just the passion of the industry and just pushing innovation forward, 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 forward as much as possible. And then the market responding with, with validation. Right. And so like what Stripe has done is, is, is is pretty incredible and the market's validating their success. Well, and and what they did is they solved one problem really, really well, because previously if you're an app developer or you have, and you were, you wanted to on your website, take somebody's credit card. You basically had to create the code yourself. Like this field has to have 16 digits. This field only accepts dates. This field is for the uh, three-digit verification code. Uh, right. 
Yeah. This is the the name on the you had to do all this work. What's the billing address? You had to do all this work yourself. And they basically developed it so you could just as a developer copy nine lines of code and paste that into your app and now you can take credit cards. And so of course every developer, if it was gonna take you three weeks to build a credit card charge system and you got a nice secure one for in ten seconds you were going to do this. So they just solved one thing really, really, really well. And look what's happened because of that. So Will, I know that you've got to drop off now. David and I will continue. Just want to say thank you so much for uh, joining us and offering your insight into this issue and, uh, and the stories that we've talked about today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for just everything that you do. Um, believe it or not, here on, on partner side at Gusto, a uh, lot of the the partner advisors that work with the accounting p- partners out there, they're always constantly asking, what what are the podcasts to listen to? And obviously, top of mind is Cloud Accounting Podcast. So much so that I think I'm actually going to work on a toolkit for our partner advisors of like all the top podcasts for them to listen to so that th- that way they could stay up to speed. If people want to connect with you online and learn more about what you're up to, Will, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, two places. Uh, Twitter first, uh, so you can follow my uh, my handle at, at zwilster, um, and you can just friend me on. Uh, I, w- I was going to say friend me on LinkedIn is more like connect with me on LinkedIn, right? So you can connect with me on LinkedIn forward slash W Lopez Junior. I think is the uh, the actual landing page. Get in touch, follow me. I like to, I still do my quirky videos on YouTube. Still kind of do all of that. So still still uh, pretty involved out there. Awesome. Thanks, Will. All right. Thank you, guys. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Rewind. For years, Rewind has been successfully backing up thousands of small businesses' data that is stored in cloud apps like Shopify, BigCommerce, and MailChimp, saving these small businesses from CSV import errors, employee mistakes, and app integrations that didn't go as planned. Rewind has also been backing up QuickBooks Online company data too. That's right, Cloud Accounting World, I did say backup QuickBooks Online company data. It only takes seconds to install what is essentially an insurance policy against major disaster, or just those small business owners that like to get, quote, creative in the accounting system. Rewind works automatically in the background, capturing all the changes to your QuickBooks Online in real time. If something does go wrong, Rewind is the only service that gives you 100% control of what you need to restore, be it one transaction, multiple transactions, or all the data. To learn even more about Rewind and access a special offer just for listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash rewind. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-W-I-N-D. All right, we're back and Will is gone, so now we can talk about him. <laughs> but I don't have anything to say because Will's such a nice guy and I think Gus is really lucky to have him. I, I, I honestly could say like I did not know Will. I only knew Will from his YouTube videos and I was always like, what is this guy? Because he oh, he like would edit like crazy emojis that were on fire in his videos and I was like, oh, yeah. what is this guy doing? Does he have his real accounting firm? Like It was a little bit confusing and so I, I only knew him from that. But then I got to know uh, meet him and get to, got to know him pretty well at the accounting salon. He's totally legit. Really like him. So, so continuing on um, sort of related to what Will was talking about or what we were talking about together uh, about Stripe, Stripe's biggest competitor in the payment space is Square uh, on the retail side, right? And everybody is familiar with those point of sale square, the square dongle or the actual uh, iPad screens, right? We all have purchased at this point. I think everybody has purchased something with one of those. Well, I spotted an article in the New York Times titled Counter Service Tipping, Who Gives? 
Uh, and the subtitle is those customer facing touchscreen payment systems in restaurants are confounding customers in the US and beyond. And I was so happy to read this article because I feel this way and I feel very passionate about it and I hate it. And this Con- is the thing confounding I as in like confusing people? Yes. Okay. So I love Square. I love their app. I love their hardware. I have implemented it. I have installed it for people. I think it's fantastic. But the one thing that I really, really, really dislike is now wherever I go, when I'm buying coffee, when I'm getting a sandwich at the counter, I'm constantly being asked to give a tip, 15, 20%, sometimes even 25%. And and this is not just Square. This is like every one of these e-point of sale iPad type terminals, when they swing it around for you to sign, there's three huge buttons there. And and everybody's watching you. You've got to pick one. Everybody's watching you. And you know that the person behind the counter is going to see if you left a tip, right? And you know that the people behind you are going to see. And so then you have this I have this every time I buy something, this moment of like frustration or or anger that I'm being asked to tip because I don't know about you, David, but I firmly believe out of principle, I, I do not believe in regular counter tipping, meaning tipping when I am going to the counter and buying something. I understand having a jar for money and change and maybe occasionally giving a tip or if I'm a regular, maybe leaving a tip. But like I've always believed that tipping, tipping should be reserved for table service for waiters. I've always like thought in, like in, when you go up to counters, right? It's how much of a pain of an ass am I being? Like maybe my order's complicated and I'm making a lot of like, oh, and then hold this or do this, then maybe I'll tip. Like if I'm if I'm forcing more work to happen, I kind of right. want to make it like, tip something. But and, and I, yeah. I agree with you on that. It should, but it should be a regular thing, right? Like tipping a waiter is a regular thing to me, right? If you're a decent human being, you tip your waiter, and and you really should be tipping them, you know, uh, closer to twenty percent, like. Right. That's at least that's what uh, I understand as being kind of common practice here uh, among my family in LA. I know it's everybody's different, right? And this is the problem with tipping. Uh, like ideally, actually, we would not tip at all, but uh, that's a lost cause, right? That's like trying to argue against timesheets. <laughs> it's well, just not going to. There's plenty of other podcasts, like uh, the um, Planet Money podcast, et cetera, that have deep dived on this uh, no tipping stuff and the experiments right. around that. Okay. Well, so now there's data. Researchers have collected data to find out. Who is tipping? Am I in the minority? Because when Am you just I put in... cash in the jar, there's right, no tracking. You don't really know. Now everybody's yeah. being tracked. Okay, this is right. interesting because I, I would love to hear this data because I've not seen this article or heard anything. So this article is based on data provided by Toast. It's a Boston-based company that provides point-of-sale platforms to thousands of restaurants and cafes around the country. This is uh, 2019 tipping statistics they provided to this New York Times reporter. In cafes, 58.5% of customers left tips. And for fast casual restaurants, the kind where you go up to a counter and order and then the food is brought to your table, it was 46.5%. So close to half, but not half, but close to half of people at cafes and fast casual restaurants are tipping uh, on those digital point of sale systems. And the average tip for both was around 17%. So half of people are tipping 17% and the other half are like, no, like me. So this is a clear split here, right? Uh <laughs> But I wonder Which, if if it's with the if if it's higher than it was prior to the um, forced opt almost forced opt in right because before you would have to th- remember to do the tip think about doing the tip versus just being in front of you and just clicking and signing just you right. press the button and sign so I'm it's got like fundamentally from a use case perspective it has to be increased the tipping tipping has to be up overall. And and here's the thing, uh, Clover, a Toast competitor, another point of sale system, they collected data for tipping at tens of thousands of American restaurants under the category fast food, 
which includes cafes and fast casual restaurants. In May 2019, customers paying with cards tipped 42% of the time that tipping was available to them. Uh, and so then if you add the customers that throw in cash into the jar, it's looking like we've got 50%, 50% tip rate and a substantial tip, right? More than just dumping the change they give you into the jar, which is kind of what I always used to do. This is a lot. And of course, you know, the business owners are very happy because this allows them to not raise wages, right? This is the, this is the weird thing about tipping is that when we tip, we are subsidizing Theoretically, right, economics would tell us that we are helping business owners not pay a higher wage because we're making up for that. And so, like, is that a, is that a good thing? Uh, and it's weird too that like fifty percent of customers end up tipping and the other fifty percent don't. So some of us are paying lower prices just because we choose to, and some are paying more because they choose to. And what I don't like is the cognitive dissonance. I feel I don't know if that's the right word for it, but I, I definitely feel like this little like pain in my, like right behind my eyes every time I see that uh, and I have to choose no tip because it makes me feel like a bad person. So I, I want to know like if if it actually like causes discontent among the customers. Well, it'd be more interesting just to get a email report of your tipping after the year <laughs> and find out like, you know, where I fit in. Maybe I'm over tipping, you know, yeah. like I'd like to know where, where this all slides in because those scales too, if you ever know, sometimes they, it's 17, no. 19, 22. It's not 15, 17, 20, like the scale, like, cause they can make those numbers wherever they want. So I, right. this is an interesting, uh, like this data is very, very interesting. Oh, and then the question is, uh, what about rideshare, car services, Uber and Lyft? Do you tip on Uber and Lyft on a regular basis, David? Uh, yes-ish. <laughs> like, I, what does that I, mean? Like, like, unless like, I don't remember being in the car, then I don't tip. I'm like, I don't even remember that ride. No, I don't tip. But if I remember who it is, usually I tip. So, you know, Uber used to not offer tips. And I actually really liked that. I thought that was a differentiator versus a taxi where you're you're like obligated to give a cash, cash and a tip. It's like, how much do I tip? And like the, a taxi driver never seemed to be happy no matter what. They always seemed like unhappy. It was never enough. It was never enough. Yeah. So Uber held off on tipping until 2017, but then they made it available and it's available in the US and 48 other countries. So there's data now on on tipping. So Lyft provided data. They didn't provide they couldn't provide data on the percentage of riders tipping, but they did say that their drivers make an average of $30.84 per hour, of which $2.27 per hour is tips. So that's well under 10% of their income. So while tipping is widespread, it's either in extremely low amounts or not yet the norm. And Uber wouldn't provide the data. So we don't know about the US, but we do know about Europe. So FreeNow, a European rideshare service that's a joint venture of Daimler and BMW, was formerly known as MyTaxi. They have data on tipping across Europe. So in Germany, 83% of riders tip. 83% in Germany. 53% tip in Britain. 48% in Poland. 46% in Italy. 39% in Spain. And 35% in Ireland. And how much people tip is lower than in the United States. Poland is on top with an average of uh, 12%. Yeah, I'm torn about that too, right? Like, should tipping for a ride service be regular? Should it not? Uh, what's normal? It's not like you can just like look this up. Like things are changing so rapidly. It's not like there's a, uh, you know, what was that, that column that used to be in the newspaper where people ask etiquette tips? We don't have that anymore. So um, this is one of those things that I am just. 
I, I, I think this is a soapbox survey you should do for your yourself on Twitter. Just finding out, you know, how people do what they feel about these automatic. They're not automatic tips, but they're kind of these um, social. Like you're kind of being forced. You're not even forced. It's 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 like opt in. Like you, you, well, you cannot, you hard to opt out. Like you're just forced to do it. And here's what I don't like about this: is like, okay, I'm tipping at the the counter for service. I'm tipping my rideshare driver. Like as an accountant, I never ask for tips, but maybe I should. Like maybe all of us should be asking for tips when we collect our invoices. Check here to give me an 18% tip on this uh, service that I provided to you. Like why shouldn't we do it if that if if everybody can do it? <laughs> Fair game, right? Yeah. So, so that's my uh, rant uh, and the one thing that I don't like about these modern point of sale systems. Uh, we got mo- we got more to talk about if we got some time here. I have a about uh, selling your firm article. Yeah, let's okay. Yeah, everybody wants to sell their firm. So this article is in the Canadian Accountant. This is Canada's independent news source for the accounting profession. This is the number one factor for an accounting practitioner's looking to sell. And the article uh, touches on you. Everybody always talks about percentage of total billings. What's the going rate? What is your percentage of total billings? But she said she's kind of arguing that the most important one is client retention. I don't know if you mentioned the author. It's Bridget Noonan. Oh, my bad. Sorry. Yes. No worries. And Wait, so what did she say is the most important so, factor? So she her argument is the really the most important factor is retention. Retention. What's the current retention rates of an accounting firm? Mm-hmm. Right? Are clients leaving? Right, and your yeah, ability to yeah. retain the clients once you buy the firm, absolutely, because they might not like you. Maybe it's not the right fit, and now you've lost those firms. So now you've completely overpaid for a firm, and so yeah. it's not the what the current billing rate is. There's other numbers to look at. I agree, and well, that's why it's really important to also have a clawback provision if you're buying a firm. You want to ensure that the clients are with you for at least four or five years, so that you can uh, make back the profit that you would be paying out to the partner who's departing and uh, definitely always include something like that. You want to have at least five years. If they leave before then, then you get to reduce the price. And there's like a formula for that. And then the other uh, piece of that is we 10 episode, uh, episode 110, mm-hmm. uh, that really, uh, there's a panel we did and we talked about selling your firm and there's a lot of, uh, really important bullets in there. If you guys want to jump in and listen to that episode. So the last thing that I've got today is something that was sent to me by Jacob Oberlander, CPA. He was in a, a LinkedIn group and um, forwarded me this message. A CPA who is in a small rural and isolated community, and they still don't have high-speed internet. So he was asking the group, like, how do we embrace cloud accounting and uh, all this stuff when we don't have reliable broadband internet? And it just reminded me that Living in a big city like LA, I, you know, where we have gigabit Ethernet, like I, I can get that in my building here, right? It's still a problem in a lot of the United States where there's not reliable high speed internet, and I think that is going to be one of the big barriers to cloud adoption in this country. So th- thank you, Jacob, for for pointing that out. And he also said that um, it, it, he was reminded of it in his own experience because he was traveling on the New York State Thruway to Canada, and there was a stretch of eighty miles that had they didn't even have cell phone reception. And I met that's true. And I've driven, you know, from Tucson to San Diego or Tucson to L.A. There's stretches in the Arizona desert here where you don't have cell phone reception. The good news is though that the FCC is aware of this issue and has uh, been working on. Uh, subsidizing the expansion of broadband into rural areas. The FCC has authorized $121 million in funding 
to bring broadband service to 36,579, quote, unserved rural homes and businesses in 16 states, unquote, over the next decade. This recent announcement was in uh, August, and it represents the fourth wave of support from the 2018 Connect America Fund Phase 2 auction. Uh, and the providers will receive funding this month. So subsidizing the expansion of broadband into rural areas, approximately 17% of businesses are in rural parts of the country, despite the fact that 97% of the U.S. is classified uh, as rural. So I think this is a great thing um, because just from a uh, the, an economic political perspective, as we move toward a services-based online economy, if you don't have broadband internet, you're left out. The jobs are disappearing that, you know, like at your local hardware shop and, you know, how are you going to get a job as like an online, I don't know, online, online bookkeeper or something uh, or, or whatever, if you, if you, the best you have is like a slow, terrible DSL connection. And, and what I've noticed too is in my experience is where there's nobody at and there's no economic activity, you know, empty parts of the desert, there's no service, some, some part of a forest, there's no service. But even like you went to, like, it's not so much big city technology based because you can go to across the entire Midwest where pet population densities are very low and you can get very good cell phone service and internet service because all the farming equipment now is all online. It's between GPS maps and online right, right. and the farming and people are monitoring their farming equipment from their, their iPad sitting in a truck um, two miles away. Like, so it's really where there's economic activity, that's where you're going to have internet access. And so then I'm kind of like, well, if there's no economic activity there, is there even somebody with the need for cloud accounting? Well, yeah, there's businesses out there. I mean, there, and, and here's the thing is, is in California, it's well known, I think, that we have a housing crisis, right? There's a reason that half of the homeless population in the country is in California. I just read that stat recently, which is depressing. And a lot of those people are in LA and San Francisco. And the reason they're homeless is because it's a supply and demand mismatch, right? We have too many people and we haven't built enough housing. So unless we're going to build more housing, which doesn't seem like there's a political will to do that, people are going to have to leave and go elsewhere to find affordable housing. And actually, you know, given that I can work in the cloud, I've talked about this with my family is like, you know, why don't we just go out somewhere more rural and, you know, set up shop there. But then one of the constraints is a lot of these cities that are very appealing, they're out in the mountains that are beautiful, like don't have broadband, believe it or not. Or if they do, it's just not very fast. I mean, like we're talking, you know, one megabit is the best you can do and it costs a fortune. And I'm like, I can't, I can't operate on that. I, you know, I, <laughs> I need a hundred, I need a thousand, right. Um, to do like to, to, to do what we're doing right now, David, where you're broadcasting from uh, Tucson and I'm here in LA and we're doing, these are high quality files that we're sharing back and forth, right? This is a must have. So it's actually the lack of broadband has limited our choices. We'll do a challenge here. Next time we go to Mexico, we'll, uh, you know, I'm on the road somewhere. We'll try yeah, we'll to record try. something. That's how it goes. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, that's all I've got for this week. As always, you can reach me on uh, LinkedIn. Please send me a message and let me know that you're a listener when you uh, connect with me there. And uh, on Twitter, at Blake T. Oliver. How about you, David? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at David Leary. You can also find me on uh, LinkedIn, at David Leary. And you can find the Cloud Accounting Podcast as Cloud Accounting Podcast on all the socials. Please follow us. Um, please go to Podchaser, write a review, write a review on iTunes. Um, we will read it on the air. And if you haven't, like if you tend to be one of the listeners that only listens to the news episodes and skips the interview episodes, definitely go listen to the episode we did with um, Cache's lawyer. Um, Wendy Slavkin. Slavkin. It's excellent. Yeah. And it's almost shocking how much she 
tells us Shared. about the yeah. the whole like it's the only end to end full experience view of what happened yeah that was a really fun one uh well david until next week have a great one bye, bye everybody bye